when you read through the Bible, you get two types of messages, really. The epistles are filled with it, really just two main topics. Uh, most of the, the number one topic is the gospel and anything that relates to the gospel, what Jesus did, who Jesus was, what it meant for you, who you are because of what Jesus did. That's the gospel message, and it's in every epistle. There's another percentage of the epistles in the New Testament that deal with something that most people don't like to talk about, and that's you. So it talks about Jesus, then it talks about us. And so it's almost like two totally different messages, right? Because if you go to a church and all they do is focus on Jesus and what he did, then it's like the mirror is turned the other way. The mirror, the mirror is on God, and it's magnifying God, and it's everything he did, and that's fantastic, and there should be a whole lot of that in church. But some churches never turn the mirror around, and where you get a sermon that causes you to look at you. And because, you know, God's who he is, and that's great, but you are who you are, and we have some changing to do still, right? Am I the only one, or is there other? Okay, a few people, few people know it, a few living in denial. Um, but the, the, the New Testament is filled with lots of information about what you need to do. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. I've been in church my whole life. I'm not going to retell you all my story, but just suffice it to say, I do not remember a time in my life that I've not been in church multiple times every single week. So that's how I was raised. I've been, I know church people. I know church people really well. And this is what I know about church people is there's a certain type of Christian that never wants to hear about themselves, ever. And as a matter of fact, if they go to a church where they start hearing too much about themselves, they will change churches and they will go to another church where all they hear is about God and his goodness and his grace and his mercy because they never want the flashlight shined on them. How many know that's not right? And that's not us, right? That's, that's not us. But there is a person like that. And what I want to encourage you to do is you don't, you don't need to be uncomfortable hearing about you because that's the gospel message can change you. Okay, so I like to hear about me. I like to hear where I need to change because I always want to grow. I always want to develop. I always want to get better. But some people, uh, they can get really discouraged in that. So this, this, look, let me just tell you what this message is, okay? This message is it's turning the mirror around. We're going to look at ourselves a little bit. But I don't want this to bring condemnation or shame on you. That certainly is not the goal. And actually, what we're going to be talking about is something called self-control. Okay? And this has a lot to do with fasting and prayer, as you probably have already found out. But self-control, self-control, that's an odd phrase to begin with, isn't it? Self-control. Just, just apply that to anything else, like wife control. Weird. You know, husband control. Uh, Strange. Uh, you know, even, even children control. Some of us need to get control of our kids, but we never use that word. Nobody ever says, man, you need some child control in your life. It's like, it would help you, but, you know. So it, we don't really use it for anything else because it just feels so weird. You know, again, I'm not going to say, but if you're trying to control your spouse or a lot of other things, people would look at you like, man, there's something wrong with you. But when we use the word self-control, everybody knows, and you don't even have to be a Christian to know everybody needs self-control. What does that even mean, self-control? Really, it's not the proper, it's really not the proper phrase. It's really not the proper word, actually. Because if you, and we've been talking about this in our series, uh, Fellowship, leading up to, leading up to this series, 
But in our series in fellowship, we talked a lot about the difference between spirit and flesh. And if you understand who the real person is, if you understand who you really are, you understand that you are not flesh, you are spirit. You understand that the real you is spirit. And that is your real self. So self-control is not really the proper word. Because your spirit has God on the inside. If you've been born again, you have the spirit of God in you. You have the fruit of the Spirit in you. Your spirit wants to do right. Your spirit wants to pray. Your spirit wants to worship. Your spirit wants to read the Word of God. That's not the problem. The problem is your flesh. Your flesh is lazy. Your flesh is selfish. Your flesh doesn't feel like praying. Your flesh wants to be entertained 24-7. Your flesh wants to be appeased 24-7. Wants you know, entertainment and have all of its desires met 24-7. That's your flesh. So a lot of people are confused going through this life. They don't understand why do I want to do good one day? Why do I want to do bad another? Or why do I want to do good one second and then another second not? Well, because you are a spirit. You have a body or flesh. You have, you have a mind, I should say a soul, and you live in a body. But one day your, your body, your flesh is going to die. So the, the proper term is not really self-control. I'm not looking to change it this morning. We can keep using it, but just realize when we use it, what we really mean is flesh control. Because the real self is your spirit. So what you're really trying to control is your flesh, that part of you that isn't like God, that part of you that's not yet submitted to God, that part of you that still wants to sin. Yes, everybody has it. That part of you that until the day that you die is going to be there, and Paul talks about subjecting it constantly, ruling over it constantly, putting it under constantly. Yes, Paul the apostle had to do it. Guess what? Jesus had to do it. A lot of people don't realize that or think about it. Jesus had to do it. Just go read about his account in the garden where he's praying to God, and he says, not my will, but your will. In other words, my flesh doesn't feel like going through with this right now. The reason I'm here is because my spirit knew this was the right thing. The reason I'm even on this planet and, and dying for these people is because my spirit knew. But now he's got a flesh. Now he's living in a human body, and his flesh is not excited about the cross. So he's got to put it under. He said, not my will, but your will be done. What was he doing? He was crucifying the flesh. He was putting the flesh under. He was exercising flesh control, self-control over that part of him. Now... How many of you have endeavored, you don't have to raise your hand, just answer it inside yourself. How many have endeavored to improve their prayer life or their devotional Bible reading throughout the years? You know, just, you think about that. How many, how many times have you thought, okay, I'm going to really get serious here. And I'm going to read the Bible. And I'm going to pray. I'm going to, I'm going to do things. Or I'm, going to, I'm going to have a disciplined prayer life. So, so we've all, we all know what's good and right, but sometimes what do we lack? We don't... It's not that you even necessarily lack desire. It's just sometimes you lack self-control. It's like the desire is there to do it, but then when the alarm clock goes off at a certain time, my flesh is really loud at that moment. And my flesh is just so powerful. And my eyes, I can't keep them open. I stay in bed. Well, your problem's not on the spiritual end. See, a lot of people think that. They go, well, I'm just not spiritual enough. I'm a, I just must not love God enough. A lot of times, that's not your problem. A lot of times, your pro our problem is our flesh. Now, I'm going to talk to you about some really practical things this morning. I know you came to church thinking you were going to hear really spiritual stuff, but I, I want to give you some really practical things because guess what? God 
created the way that we function, right? The fact that we have a spirit and we have a soul and we live in a body, the fact that we deal with the flesh, God's the one who created this system. Of course, it's been changed and corrupted by sin, but he's the one that created it, and so the Bible knows all about it. Now, let, let me just say this about self-control. Self-control was, whatever level of self-control you have was not uh, put in you overnight. And it's not something you can change overnight. There's no one that's walking out of here today and saying, okay, I'm going to be really self-controlled from here forward. You know why? Because it's been built in you over a lifetime. And this is the very important part that we need to understand. All you can do this morning is decide, I'm going to begin to change in that area. I'm going to begin to grow in that area. I'm going to begin to increase in that area. But no one's walking out of here today if they're very undisciplined and, very, and have no self-control. No one's walking out of here today and flipping a switch. Like today, you were super out of control, and tomorrow, you're super self-controlled. That's not, that's not happening. Uh, and it's not that it couldn't be forced upon you, like if you go to boot camp or something like that. It, it could be. It's not that it couldn't be forced upon you. But if it's just left up to you, it's not changing overnight. Now, what, you, what, what a lot of people do if they do that is it might change for a few days. It might change for a couple of weeks. Then you're just going to revert back to what you were if that's your mentality. If you think, I'm just going out of here today and I'm going to just be super self-controlled. What you can do is start moving the dial in the right direction. But none of us are, and that's really not the goal even. I think that's a too lofty of a goal because Christianity is not a sprint. It's a marathon. It's a, it's, a, it's a journey. Year builds upon year. Year after year builds upon year after year. And you wake up a decade, 20 years in, and you've built something. And God's doing something with your life, and now your kids look a certain way. And then their kids look a certain way. Christianity is not a magic pill we take, and our lives all change instantly. It's a long process and a long journey that a culture, quite frankly, who is used to immediate gratification doesn't really like that process. That's why a lot of people try church for a few Sundays. And like, well, I, I was in a really bad spot. I came, I tried to give everything to God, and nothing changed. Well, you came two weeks. I mean, what do you expect? What in life is like that? And besides, if you gave it to God because of what he could do to you, or what he could do for you, you didn't really do it for the right reason in the first place. And see, when we come to the Lord, we come because of our love for him. And we realize who he is. And we realize who we are. And if he's God and I'm man, he deserves my worship, period. And I'm coming. So self-control is built actually very slowly. And, and I, I hate to tell you this because you're all adults. Uh, the, the actually, the most powerful and best time to build self-control is when you're a child. It's actually not when you're, you're, it's actually not when you're an adult. And if you look at children that are taught this, and you look at children that are made to learn self-control, and you look at children that are learned, uh, that have been made to learn discipline and learn to exercise control over their flesh, and they don't get every little single thing their beady eyes want, and they're made to exercise restraint, and actually they, they, they don't get every single thing that they want, and they're not just completely and totally you know, blessed all the time, and they've got a life of ease and a life of comfort, that's actually some of the most pleasant children to be around. And we all know this. Uh, one of, some of the worst children to be around are children that have been handed everything. They ain't never had to work for nothing. They've never had to suffer. 
Every time they, every time they whine, cry, throw a fit, is appeased, is handed to them. We just want them to be quiet. We're going to give them, we're going to give them this, give them that, because we want them to be quiet. Those are the worst children to be around. And I don't know a lot of your kids personally, so if you're like kind of squirming this morning, I don't, I'm not thinking about anybody in particular. I'm just saying we all know this to be the case. We all know this to be the case. So a child that is taught self-control, though, when they are young, it stays with them the rest of their life. And that hard work, that work ethic, that discipline, that ability to say no to flesh, that will serve them their whole life. It'll serve them. But so many parents are short-sighted, and they can't see that. And so they just think, I just want them to be happy. I want them to stop crying. I just want them to not be mad at me. And so they give, they give, they give. That's where the term spoiled comes from. It means that you're ruining their character. That's what spoiled means. You know, like a piece of meat rots, and we say it's spoiled? That's what it means. It means you're ruining them. You're ruining their character because later in life, they will have no character, and they will have no self-discipline, and they will have no self-control. Because guess what? No one else in life is going to give them like you're giving them. No one else is going to care about their whines and their cries and, their, and all of that and, and you're going to serve them and give them everything like you do and put up with their bad attitude. No one else is going to do that. So you're, you're ruining them and you're not, you're not preparing them properly for life. Actually, I look at it this way. Uh, the Bible doesn't say a lot about raising children. The Bible says a lot about training children. And that's a huge difference. I'm not biding my time. Uh, like just waiting for you to get old and leave my house, I have 18 years or so to train you and to put everything in you that's in me that's good, try to leave out all the bad stuff. (laughs) Somehow I find this way in there, though. It's strange. But I have 18 years to train you, and so when I see you treating your... I I wasn't supposed to be talking about parenting this morning, but I'm going to stay here for just a minute because I can tell that we need to be here. When I see... You treating your sister a certain way, my thought is that's how you're going to treat your spouse unless I change it. Unless I train you, that's not how you treat somebody when you have a disagreement. That's not how you communicate. That's not how you talk to somebody when you get mad. And if I don't train that out of you, who is? Who is? That's our job as parents is to train. Okay, that was a side trail. I'm going to get off of that. We do lots of sermons on marriage and family. We're going to get off of that. But it, it applies because here's the, here's the situation. First of all, if self-control is that important, then realize now is the best time to put that in your children. It's crucial. You're, you're, you're giving them a treasure box for the rest of their life that will just keep giving if you teach them self-control and discipline. And I'll tell you this, when they get to a certain age, they will look back and realize, if you've given them every little thing that they want, they will look back and realize that did not serve me well. And I don't know how many people I've talked to, adults that i talk to that tell me that, that say, man, I really should have been made to do this. I should have been made to do this. I should have had this put in me, and I don't know what my parents were doing. But So they, it may good, be good now, but it's not good for the long term. I didn't get a whole lot of amens. I heard one over here, and it was my own mom. I mean, what? Golly. She's amening because that's how we, she did me. So she's like, hey, I did everything right. Praise God. <laughs> now, I want to read this to you. This is uh, something I had saved on this topic. 
1972, a psychologist named Walter Michelle conducted a series of studies on delayed gratification known as the Stanford Marshmallow Experiment. The original study was done at a Bing nursery school with children ages four to six. A single marshmallow was offered to each child, and if the child could resist eating it right away, he or she was promised two marshmallows instead of one. A hidden camera allowed the researchers to observe the way in which children responded to that situation. Some kids grabbed the marshmallow the moment the researcher walked out of the room, while others mustered as much willpower as they possibly could, employing a wide range of temptation-resisting tactics. The children sang songs, they played games, they covered their eyes, they even tried going to sleep. The objective of the experiment was to see if the children's ability to delay gratification correlated to long-term academic achievement. So the academic records of 216 children who participated were tracked all the way through high school when the longitudinal results were cross-referenced with the delayed gratification times. Researchers found that the kids who exhibited the ability to delay gratification longer were more academically accomplished. They scored on average 210 points higher on the SAT. The marshmallow test, this is crazy, the marshmallow test was twice as powerful an indicator of academic achievement as IQ. The delayed gratification kids were also more self-reliant, socially competent. They took initiative more frequently and handled stress more effectively. And in a follow-up study done four decades after the initial research, they had higher incomes, stronger marriages, and happier careers. So this is something that the Bible knew all along when the Bible talked about self-control. The ability to control one's flesh, the ability to control one's self is paramount for every single thing you do in life. It could predict what's going to happen in your marriage. It's going to, it could predict what's going to happen in your job. It could predict how much money you're going to make. Apparently, the ability to exercise self-control or flesh control. Now, let me say this. I see a lot of people come into the church in a lot of different situations. You know, um, throughout the years, there's no telling how many people have come through the church. We've got the ones that are here, but we've got many that have come through and maybe moved or moved on, whatever, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people. And I see a pattern, okay? There's, there's really two types of people that come in. There's a lot of times there's people that come in, uh, I shouldn't say two types, but there's this, this uh, you'll see what I'm talking about, self-control in this. A lot of people come in in this condition, very low self-control, but super high passion. In other words, they've been touched by God. They're ready to serve God. They, they, they're, they're expressive about God. They'll talk about God. They are ready to die for God. That's their passion level. Super high passion, really low self-control. What do you think happens with that person? We all know what happens because we all know that passion dies out. And what are you left with when passion dies out? You're left with self-control. Passion is not a good fuel to accomplish goals. I mean, people, that's like one of the modern maxims. You know, man, just do what you're passionate about. Well, that's good, but you probably won't be passionate about it in two years. <laughs> I don't marry who you're passionate about because you might not be passionate about them. In five. What do you do when you're not passionate? Passion is like jet fuel 
Like it burns really hot and really fast, but it's very expensive and it's rare and it's hard to come by. You don't have, uh, passion is not a good fuel for life. It, when it's there, great. Boy, isn't it great to have passion? We all know what it's like to have passion. fantastic to have passion. But, and, and so then I see another type of person that comes in. Very high discipline. Very high self-control and low passion. In other words, they don't feel super strongly about God. They don't feel super strongly about the Bible. They want to. I'd, I'd love to feel more in love with God. But I just, I can't help how I feel. I feel how I feel. And I go, well, listen, here's what I want you to do. And they have the self-discipline to do what you tell them to do. So the passion is irrelevant because they have the self-discipline to do the right things. And by doing the right things, they will get the right things. They will acquire the right things in their life. And I'm just going to say, as a pastor that gets to work with a lot of different kinds of people, I really enjoy working with people that are, have a lot of self-control and are very highly self-disciplined. If you, come, if you came out of the world, okay, if you came out of the world totally unsaved, don't know anything about God, don't know anything about the Bible, but you came in, like, you already had a lot of things in your life in order. In other words, you were taking care of your health and fitness. You had a workout routine. You read books. You podcasted. You were eating right. You had a lot of self-discipline in your life. I know this is going to sound weird for me to tell you. You're probably going to make an excellent Christian because that self-discipline is going to transfer over. It's going to transfer into when you start praying and you start reading the Bible and you start serving others and you start attending church because you're passionate. No, because you found out reading your Bible was right and good. You found out prayer was good and right. You found out the Bible said you were supposed to go to church and you said, I, I had stuff I wanted to do on the weekend, but because I believe that's right, I have the self-control and the discipline to do it. Even though maybe my flesh doesn't want to do it, I'm going to do it anyway because I'm highly disciplined and I have a lot of self-control. I'm just giving, I told you this was really practical this morning. I know a lot of people in here are like, this is not the message I wanted to hear. I'm just going to leave now and come back next Sunday. Well, if you do that, I'm just going to preach it again next week, so... But listen, again, I told you, this is not to shame anybody. If you're like, oh, man, I'm super low self-control. I'm horrible at it. It's not to shame you. It's to just realize this is important and begin tweaking it. You can do it on the fast. One of the things the fast does is kick this process into hyperdrive. That, if you're doing it right, that's one of the things that the fast does is it, it causes you to put a lot of restrictions and boundaries on your flesh. And make it do what you want it to do. And even when it's acting out, even when it's saying, I'm hungry. Even when it's saying, I said I wasn't going to watch TV and I'm only three days in and my, I don't even know what to do. I'm like going crazy. I'm standing at the wall and you just want to reach for the remote. But you said you weren't going to do it. Can you do what you said you were going to do or not? That's where self-control comes in. And again, this is something that is put in us from the time we were young. So it's like a rut. It's like a pattern. And, you, you know, if you know anything about the, the ch child rearing and that, that psychological process, there are like, there are ruts and patterns that we get to and they're not always very easy to break. Like if, if when you were young, I know we're going back to parenting, I won't stay here long, I promise. If when you were young, you learned that pouting got your way. Like every time I pout, I get what I want. 
that becomes part of you. And it doesn't leave when you're an adult. It changes. And it looks slightly different. But I, but I can tell you, as someone who does a lot of marriage counseling, it does not leave. <laughs> it does not leave. It just changes. So people figure out how to manipulate your emotions to get what they want. It may not look like a six-year-old pouting. It's changed face a little bit, but it's still the exact same thing. This is why self-control is so important. What we learn as children is with us. If you learned as a kid that when I didn't get my way, I could get angry. And I could throw fits and I could kick and I could throw stuff and mama and daddy would do what I wanted. Listen, that's with you. And, and you will see it over and over again. In mar- when, I, when I deal with married couples and I found out, man, he's got a major anger problem. Sometimes they'll admit it, man, I got a major anger problem. This is what I think. Okay, it started, I know where it started. It started back here. And really, the parents have a huge amount to do with that. Now, you can't just keep blaming them on until you're 60, 70 years old. You know, They had a part to do. But now it's time for you to change it. So, first of all, just realize that this is, if you're a parent, this is infinitely important. You have a massive responsibility to train your children properly for their sake. For their sake. You've got to look past You've got to look past where they're at, the, the here and the now. You've got to think, man, this person's going to be married one day. They might be leading a business one day. Does this work for that? If not, get it out. That's your job. Root it out with love, with patience, with mercy, the way God does it for us. But it's got to be driven out. I know one way to do it. The Bible said the rod of correction will drive it far from Okay, I'm moving on on that. 1 Corinthians 9.24 Before I read this, let me just say, I I want to close this section out where I'm saying about the person who is high self-control and low passion versus the other way around, super high passion and low (coughs) self-control. I wanted you to know that because I know there's a lot of people in the body of Christ that don't feel spiritual enough. In other words, even in worship. You know, people are worshiping, and they see everybody else like, man, it looks like there's really passionate people all around me. People are raising their hands. They They must feel a lot stronger about God than I do. Well, that may or may not be true, but I just want you to know that is not really the most important thing in Christianity. The most important thing in Christianity is not being super passionate. As a matter of fact, when you understand what the Bible means when it says love, it does not mean an emotional feeling. This is a whole other sermon, so I can't get there. I just can't go there this morning because I could take 30 minutes on it. But when the Bible talks about love, it's not talking about feeling really strongly about something. When God says that God so loved the world, it doesn't mean that he felt very warm and fuzzy towards us. No, because he says we were enemies at that time. And that was how real love was demonstrated, because there was no warm and fuzzy feeling. Do you understand what I'm saying? When God, it says God loved the world that he gave his only son. You got to understand, God had judgment towards the world. God was angry with sinners. God was angry with the world. But even in spite of how he felt, the fact that there was no warm, fuzzy feeling, he was not in love, as we like to say today. He still chose to do the right thing, and the Bible said, that's love. The fact that you chose to do it when there was no feeling, no warm, fuzzy feeling, that was love. So, when you go, well, I don't know if I really love God that much. Well, you're here. You, you, thought it, you thought God was important enough, you thought church was important enough to get up, put your clothes on, and be here 
according to the biblical definition, that's love. Doing something when you didn't feel like doing it and you did it anyway, he said, that's, that's real love. How many of you have loved your spouse through some really difficult seasons? When somebody raised their hand, you need to slap his elbow on Come on. Put your hand down. How many? Yeah, I, I, that's why I normally say don't raise your hand when I ask you. <laughs> but what is that? So we all know when, you, when you're feeling the best and most uh, favorable towards someone, that's not the best real demonstration of love. The best demonstration of love is in the hardest moments when there is no feeling. And now there's just the vow. And I'm locked in. And I'm, I'm not worried about the feeling. I'm doing this out of love for you, out of God's love for you. That's where real love is demonstrated. So I just want to say that if that's you this morning, like, well, I don't know if I feel super loved. Well, if you have self-control, just do the right things. And this is what I have found out. Doing the right things will produce the right results. Do the right things. You go, well, is it, is it okay for God if I just do it out of, out of self-discipline? Probably not eternally. Not like ongoing decade after decade. But just do the right things. And those feelings will come. Listen, God will honor it because the Bible says that he rewards those who diligently seek him. It didn't say he rewards those who diligently feel very passionately about him. He rewards those who diligently seek him. And you can diligently seek something whether you feel like it or not. That's where self-control comes in. Okay, 1 Corinthians 9, 24. Paul said this. He said, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize. Okay, based on what? He said, in a race, everybody's running. You've got 500 people running, and out of 500, there's going to be one person that gets the prize. Why do they get it? Why do the other 499 not get it, and why do they get it? Well, we know anybody who wins a race, it's based on a lot of factors. There could be genetics involved, they could, be a, they could just be a super athlete. But we also know in a lot of cases that they're usually not the best athlete as far as just genetically. Genetically, the best, just, if we just look at genetics, genetics does not always determine who's going to be the victor. As a matter of fact, if you talk to, uh, if you talk to some of the people that are the most successful in, in the sports arena, a lot of times they were not the best athlete as far as that, just natural best athlete. But maybe they had the best training regimen. Maybe they had the most work ethic. Maybe they had the most discipline. Maybe they had the best coach. There could be a lot of factors to why a person, why a person wins. Now, the, the selfish side of us, we like to only look at the genetic side because when somebody wins and we don't, we like to go, well, yeah, they're just blessed. You know, they're just, boy, I wish I was an athlete like that. They're just, look, until you've put in the work that they've put in, you can't know for sure whether you could do what they have done. A lot of times people look at others that have done something amazing and they go, oh man, I wish I could do that. Well, if you, if you did what they've done and you put in the time that they did, you probably could. Or at least you could come really close. And that's the issue, isn't it? Because if, if somebody followed the same training regimen, I, I gave an example one time on Michael Phelps, you know, the swimmer, I forget how many gold medals he won, it was like, I don't know, I don't even want to guess, I think it was 13, something like that, it was a lot. And when you asked him about his training regimen, you know, we read his whole training regimen, this was in another sermon, and I'm thinking, anybody who does what he's doing is getting 
very similar results. It's not like the guy behind him, okay, everybody looks at him gold medal. It's not like the guy behind him is five minutes behind, right? They're fractions of a second. So maybe the genetics or maybe something pushed him over the edge. But how many of you would be okay being second to Michael Phelps? I mean, if I could get, you know, so, but it's just, it, it just seems like just about anybody that's willing could put in that level of work and get, if not the same results, very similar results, often within a fraction of a second or even a, a few seconds at best. So sometimes people look at very spiritual people that are following God. They're in the Word. Oh, man, I wish I was like that. Well, anybody can be, but they have to put in the time. Oh, I wish I had that marriage. I wish my family was like that. Well, they're not just blessed, and that's what we love to tell ourselves. Man, I wish I had a marriage like yours. It's just, you know, I wish my, I wish my relationship with my wife was like that. Well, anybody's can be, but it requires the effort and the, and the discipline to put in because you're going to get out of it what you put into it. And we need to change that. We really do. We need to change that about, our, about ourselves where we look at somebody and go, Oh, man, I, just, I, just, I wish I could have that. I wish I could be like that. Uh, and in our minds, what we're thinking is they're just, man, they're blessed. They got lucky. They're just, how many of that's usually not the case? That's usually not the reason why they're enjoying that area of their life. The reason they're enjoying that is because they have devoted tremendous effort to it. And it's a lie. It's a lie to tell ourselves, well, the only reason they have it is just because, you know, they're lucky and they're blessed. I've had people tell me that before, not meaning anything by it. Just, man, I wish my kids behaved like that. And look, my kids ain't perfect. God, I, I ain't even talking about kids because then somebody's like, oh, you said something about your kids? Well, I know something your kid did. Look, I'm sorry for, they did when, I'm sorry for what they did when I wasn't around. Okay, but anyway, but, you know, you people say stuff like that. Well, oh, man, I, you know, my kid, they're just this way. They just have this personality. Look, you don't know anything about what personality my kids had or have, but... You'd be surprised what good training does. And for anybody that says that, well, oh, you know, my kids just aren't like that or my marriage is not like that. Well, that's an excuse that we can lean on. That's a crutch we can lean on when really we need to realize that doing the right things will produce the right result. So Paul says, do you not know that in a race all runners run, but only one receives the prize based on what? Well, a lot of factors, not generally and typically just genetics or something like that. So he tells Christians, so run that you may obtain, run that you may be the one that wins. Every athlete exercises what? Self-control in all things. So he immediately points to this one factor as a, as a huge determining factor of who's going to win and who's not. And he's using athletics as an example. He says, every athlete runs, but only one is going to win. He said, I want you to run this Christian race. I want you to run this Christian life as if you're an athlete who's trying to beat out 500 people and get the first prize. And let me say this. If you are somebody that has lots of devotion and self-discipline in other areas of your life, doesn't it make sense that your walk with God should get that same level, if not more, devotion and commitment and discipline? Matter of fact, I don't know that it's correct and right if there's any area of our life that's getting more commitment and more devotion than our, than, than our relationship with God. Like if you're an expert bodybuilder, but... You don't spend any time with God in prayer. 
and you don't know the word and you call yourself a Christian, that's a problem. Okay? Actually, the Bible would probably call that idol worship because something else is getting the, the worship and the devotion and the time that God should be getting. So nothing wrong with being excellent at lots of things in your life, but your relationship with God as a Christian doesn't need to be like seventh or eighth down the list. And that's kind of what he's, what he's saying here is, if you're going to be a Christian, he said, I want you to go after that like you would go after working out, like you would go after running a 5K, like you would go after winning a race, like you would train for that. I want you to put that same level of intensity and devotion into your relationship with God. Every athlete, every athlete who exercises self-control in all things, they do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we, an imperishable. So then he makes this great connection, and he says those who are training to run a race, they're doing it for some plastic trophy. But when you're fighting, you're fighting for eternal things. When you're fighting for your prayer life and your Bible and your relationship with God, you're fighting for something that has eternal value. They do it for a perishable wreath. We do it for an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. Or you could say without purposeful direction. Okay, I don't just go to church when I feel like it. Read the Bible when I feel like it. Pray when I feel like it. That's aimless. That's exactly what he's talking about right here. That's purposeless. No different going to the gym. Well, you know, I'll do a few curls this day. And well, when I go in, if I feel like it, I hop on the treadmill. How many of you know the results you're going to get from that? None. And that's how a lot of people do Christianity. Then they come to me, they come in my office, and they complain. Well, I did try to do this, I did it. Yeah, but listen what he's saying here. I do not run or fight for my relationship with God or pursue my purpose with God. I do not do it aimlessly. Just, oh, whenever I feel like it, oh, sometimes I come to church, sometimes I don't, sometimes I read the Bible, sometimes I don't. There's no purpose in that. It's aimless. There's no direction. There's no structure to it. Well, guess what? That's the kind of results you're going to get. Is this making sense? Because I I feel like I talk to a lot of Christians that it it doesn't make sense doesn't make sense. But, and they, they feel like somehow, and I get tired of hearing it, to be honest with you, they, they act like it's on God's end. Like they just can't figure out how come I can't even know God? How come I can't experience God? How come I can't get these things right in my life? It's not rocket science. And this is what I know. God's never failed anybody. God's never done wrong by anyone. You're not an exception. You're not a special case that just, ha- you know, you just have bad luck. Listen, it's not on God's end. I know we don't like to hear that. It's not on God's end. It's on our end. A lot of times, you could go back here. You could go back here. Paul said, I do not run aimlessly. In other words, there is purpose in everything that I do. I get up at the same time every morning. I read the Bible for the same amount of time every day. I pray for the same amount of time every day. I have a routine. I have a structure. Why? Because there's purpose. You think it's when I feel like it? No. It's not when I feel like it. There are plenty of mornings I feel like it. Plenty of mornings I don't feel like it. But it's not aimless. It's not purposeless. There's a a structure to it. Listen, that's where the results are. That's where the results are. So I do not run aimlessly, he says. I do not box as one beating the air. In other words, I'm, I'm, I'm doing a lot of movement, but there's zero being accomplished. I do not box as one beating the air. 
but I discipline my body and I keep it under control lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So Paul is telling the Corinthians, he says, I'm telling you how I do what I do. He said, I discipline my body, and another translation says, I make it my slave. My body does what I tell it to do. My flesh does what I tell it to do, not the other way around. And so many... Christians are led by their flesh. They do what they, when they feel like it. They, 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 do, they pray when they want. They read when they, they go to church when they want. They do what they want, what their flesh wants, instead of disciplining their body and making it their slave and doing what their spirit wants to do. In other words, the spirit is in the captain's seat, not the flesh. Let me read one more scripture to you. We didn't even get halfway through the sermon. I guess I'll finish it next week. Matthew 4, 1. We've been reading this since we started the fast. But Jesus went into the wilderness. Matthew 4, 1. Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Now, why would the Son of God... Why would the Spirit of God lead the Son of God into the wilderness to fast for 40 days? How many of you have ever been camping for a day, two days? Anybody ever been camping for a week? A few of us? Longest I've been is eight days. I've been camping eight days before on the trail. Uh, 40 days is a long time to be in the wilderness. And fasting while you're doing it. What is happening? Lots of discomfort. Lots of discomfort. I don't even know if Jesus had a tent. I don't know. The Bible doesn't say anything about him having a tent. Sleeping on rocks. The dew of the earth getting on him. Waking up every day, fasting, praying, fasting, praying, fasting, praying. 40 days. Why 40 days? Why not two days? Why not three days? See, the flesh is not that complicated. It takes a certain amount of time to break your will. It takes a certain amount of time to crush that defiance, to crush that rebellion in your flesh, to crush that mentality that flesh is king and I rule. It takes a certain amount of time to break a person's flesh down until it is ready to serve and really ready to yield. Think about anything. How, how, long does it take, how long does it take to do uh, boot camp and crush down a soldier until they're ready to listen, ready to yield, ready to follow instructions? So 40 days is very purposeful, and you see it many times in Scripture. Moses went on the mountain for 40 days. John the Baptist was in the wilderness pretty much his whole life living, living through this process. But you see 40 days a lot in, in Scripture when people are you know, getting alone with God and uh, we do 21 days because Daniel did 21 days. And I'd just be afraid if we did 40 days, we might lose half the, half the church in it. So, and, and I just think a lot would leave at 21 days anyway. So we do 21 days. Some of us, sometimes people go beyond that, you know, just because they, they realize the process isn't complete. 21 days and they go, man, I, I, I think I want to keep doing this. I think I want to go another week, another two weeks because you, you realize what's happening in you. 
So Jesus went into the wilderness for 40 days, and I've always asked myself that question. Why did Jesus go in the wilderness? If he was the Son of God, why did he need to fast in the first place? If you think about what fasting is, why did Jesus need to fast? And, you know, you can get into a lot of conversations about exactly how the person of Jesus functioned on this earth. But bottom line is, I always the answer to that question is, why did Jesus fast? Because he needed to, apparently. So that tells you a lot. If Jesus needed to fast, we know why we fast. We know that it's about putting the flesh under. If Jesus needed to fast, how much more do we need to fast? Someone who, by the way, was sinless. Never made a mistake in the area of of sin. Never made a mistake. Yet he needed to fast in order to put his flesh under And look at what was accomplished in those 40 days. Same thing happened with Moses. After the 40 days, comes out full of the glory of God, full of the presence of God, ready to do what God's called him to do. And all all I'll say is this on on the prayer and the fasting. Okay. Uh, Sometimes we're so close. Sometimes we are so close to breaking over that threshold and that, that barrier and getting to that, that place of total and complete victory in our lives. And it, and it could just be a few weeks away. It could just be a few days away. A, a few weeks of prayer and fasting. If you knew that 40 days of prayer and fasting could completely revolutionize everything in your life, would you do it? You know, if you knew everything in your life that you hate, everything that you're struggling with, that you could get answers on if you just would go after God for 40 days. I wonder what that would, I wonder how many people would do it, and I wonder what that would look like in your life. Now, it's not half-hearted, because Jesus didn't do it half-hearted. It was 40 days of complete devotion to God. I'm not advocating for that this morning. Really, all I wanted you to see is the connection between what we're doing and what Jesus did, the fasting and the prayer, why we do it. But... As you're on this fast, if the Lord begins to speak to your heart about going deeper, changing what you're doing, making it more more intense, you know, maybe you'd started out kind of soft and you and you feel like, man, I need to do more. I want to maybe I want to go longer. Listen, you should listen to that because the Spirit will lead you into what you need to do for you. He'll lead you and he'll guide you in that. As we close this morning, I, I just want to remind you of of what we were saying this morning. So much of your relationship with God has to do with self-control and self-discipline. And a lot of times that has a dirty word. It's like a dirty word because Christians, when they think of self-control, they think of uh, living in self-control so we can be holy. In other words, a lot of times when Christians talk about self-control, they talk about it as a way to like gain God's favor and, and be holy. That's not really what we're talking about this morning, even though you need self-control to be holy. But that's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about living holy. We're talking about having the self-discipline to go after God and the disciplines that it takes to get close to God, even when you don't feel like it. That's what we're talking about. I'm not talking about this as a way to earn God's favor or to be righteous before God or even to be holy. We could talk about that in another sermon. But today, all we're talking about is... Do you have 
self-control? And can you develop self-control so that you can, that, that you can lay out a manageable, doable plan for your prayer life and your Bible reading and your church attendance and things like that that you can stick to and you can follow for long periods of time? Not a week, not two weeks, but decades. Decades. Amen?